Hey, I'm so glad to see you today. We want to welcome you to this service, and we're delighted to welcome those who are worshiping with us online as well. Always glad to have you. Now, we're finishing our series on David today. It's been five weeks, and I've gotten a lot of comments about it. People seem to really enjoy it. And today, I want to ask you a question as we get started. What do you do when your dreams don't come true? How do you respond to that? Maybe it's something that you really want desperately, but it's not going to work out for you. How do you respond to that? How do you react? Plans are great, but reality is greater than our plans. Things don't turn out the way we want. Sometimes it's because of something somebody else did. Sometimes it's because something we did. Sometimes it's because of nothing we know. It just doesn't work out. So what do you do when your dreams don't come true? There's an internal sense of panic and anger sometimes because God has promised us, right? And doesn't he owe us something? No, but that's the way we think about it a lot of times. And then there are calls and effect. I've done all the right things. I've done everything I was supposed to do, but this didn't work out the way I was hoping it would. Today, as we wrap up this series, we're going to ask the question, what do we do when our dreams can't come true? Now, when David was in his 20s, thanks to the behavior of King Saul, David realizes that some of his dreams can't come true. He's been anointed to be the next king, but he can't be the king because there already is one. And that king is King Saul, and he's trying to kill David. About 22 years after David becomes the king, he's in his 50s now. Longer the cool young teenager who killed the giant Goliath. Now he's in his 50s. He's an old man. You're saying, wait just a minute, time out. What do you mean an old man? I'm 66. 70 and 80 is looking younger to me all the time. But what you have to understand is 50s today, that's very young. But 50s back then was not that young. In fact, by that time, a lot of your teeth have fallen out. Think about that. If you're going to live 20 more years, then you got to eat baby food the whole time. And, and so he's not the cool young David now. He's the older David in his 50s. He sends his men off to battle. The Bible doesn't tell us why he doesn't go with them. But he sends them out. Maybe it's because of his age. And there he stays at home. And one night he, he can't sleep and he gets up and he walks out on his balcony and he looks and he sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. She's taking a bath. And he turns to his servant and he said, who is that? He said, well, well that's Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba. And David said, bring her to me. And Bathsheba comes to David and they spend the night together. And they probably spent several Several nights together, and she sends a message to him and says, I'm pregnant. Oh no, what do we do? But David says, I can fix this. And so he calls her husband, Uriah, back from the battlefield. He calls him in. He says, Hey, listen, give me an update. How's the battle going? He tells him. He said, well, listen, while you're here, why don't you go on home and spend the night with your wife, and then tomorrow you can go back to the battle. So that's what he does. But, but Uriah is a righteous man, and he spends the night on the ground outside the gates of the palace. And David finds out they didn't go home. He said, why didn't you go home to your wife? He said, how can I go home to my wife and live in luxury when my men are out there fighting and dying in the mud? And David says, well, okay, spend one more night. And then David gets him really drunk, and he, he puts him in the direction of his house, and 
he says, now go home and sleep with your wife. The next morning, David gets up, and Uriah still hasn't gone home. He's a good man. He won't do that. So David writes a message to Joab. Now, Joab is Uriah's commander. And he writes out this message, and he gives it to Uriah. And he says, when you get back to the battle, give this message to your commander, Joab. And here's what the message says. I want you to put Uriah up in the front of the battle. And when the battle gets very heated and it's very intense, I want you and everybody else to withdraw from Uriah and leave him there. And it's a death sentence. And so Joab does as the king tells him to do, and Uriah dies in battle. Bathsheba mourns. David brings her in. She's pregnant. Now she's living with David in the palace. She marries her. And it looks like David the magnanimous is raising the child that belongs to somebody else. He marries Bathsheba, and everything's good, and David thinks he has managed the outcome. Except there are no secrets where there are that many servants and the walls talk. And the prophet Nathan knows what's happened. And so he makes an appointment with David. And he tells David a fictitious story about a man who took advantage of another man. This man had everything. The other guy had very little. And it makes David furious. And he says, bring that man in. I'm going to put him to death. And then Nathan looks at David and he points a bony finger in his face. And he says, you are the man. And it breaks David, and it allows God to break him as well. Here's the thing. Every sin that you and I commit comes prepackaged with consequences. We can be forgiven, but there are oftentimes consequences we have to face because of it. And that day, David begins to mourn his own sin. And Nathan says to him, this is what the Lord says. Out of your household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. You did this in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, what I appreciate so much about David is that he's a man after God's own heart. He's chosen by God. God makes him the king. He's in a position of authority. He has all kinds of followers, and yet David is flawed. And that makes me appreciate him even more. You know why? Because I'm flawed. But don't get too arrogant, so are you. You see, we're all human, aren't we? And even though we intend to do the right thing, sometimes we don't do the right thing, do we? And so it's such a blessing to me to know that David was real. Even though he's a hero in the Bible, he's someone we can relate to. And so then what God does is he continues to work with David. And even though he acknowledges his fault, he's a man who says, you know, I was wrong. I confess. I repent. Please forgive me of my sins. And he surrenders his will to God. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But there are consequences because you had somebody murdered and you took his wife and then you lied about it to the country. 
And so Bathsheba gives birth and the baby dies. And then David's uh, oldest son is a guy named Amnon. And Amnon is the one who is in line to follow David on the throne. But Amnon is consumed with lust for his half-sister, Tamar. And so Tamar, they, they share one parent, Tamar and Amnon, but they don't share two parents, so they're half-siblings. Amnon is all caught up with her. That's all that's on his mind. Apparently, she doesn't even know he exists, and he can't get her attention. So finally, after he's done everything he knows to do, he pretends to be sick. He asks his father, David, have my sister Tamar bring me some food and come to my house and feed me because I'm sick. And David says, that's fine. And Amnon sends her over there. And then when she gets there, Amnon sends everybody out of his house. And they leave. And then he turns to her. And he tries to talk her into going to bed with him. She says, absolutely not. And the scriptures say, no, my brother. She said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her before. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And she's devastated. She's brokenhearted because in her culture, this means that she can never marry. She can never have a family. Where's she going to go? Who's going to take her in? What's she going to do? And when King David finds out what his son has done to his daughter, he is furious. But you know what he does? Nothing. King David does nothing because after all, he's thinking, who am I to tell somebody else how to live? after the way that I have acted. You see, his sin kept him from doing the right thing with his children. And so David does nothing. And then we're introduced to another son of David, and his name is Absalom. He's the third son of David. We don't know what happened to the second son. He must have died. But he's the one in line behind Abnon to take the throne. And so Absalom is furious that Amnon has done this thing because Tamar is his full sister. They both have the same parents and the same sister. And he's upset about it. So he takes Tamar into his house and he provides for her and, and he makes sure and takes care of her. But he doesn't do anything to Amnon. And two years go by. And then Absalom is so sure and so shrewd, and when he thinks everybody's forgotten, he decides he's going to have a big feast at his house. And he even invites King David to come, but the king says, you know, if I come, there's so much stuff you have to do to make that happen. Just don't worry about it. He said, well, what about if I invite all my brothers to come and their families? He said, that'll be fine. So that's what he does. And he has a big feast, and everybody comes, and he gets everybody good and drunk. And when Amnon is really drunk and all the families are gathered around him there, he sends his men into the dining hall, and they slaughter Amnon in front of those brothers. And everybody gets up and runs away, and they take off, and Absalom gets up and leaves, and he flees, and he goes to what we would call today modern Syria, north of Israel. Now, when King David finds out what his oldest son has done, King David does nothing 
and life just goes on. Three years pass, and David starts to miss Absalom. And so David invites Absalom to come back to Jerusalem, back to the capital city. And when Absalom gets there, he's told, you can come back and live here, but the king refuses to see you. So for the next two years, Absalom tries to get in to see King David, but he's ignored by him. Finally, King David does bring him in, and he kneels before King David. King David puts his hands, he lays his hands on his head as if to say, you're forgiven, and our relationship is restored. But that's not what happens. David never calls for his son to come in again. So what does Absalom do? Every morning, he goes down to the gate of the city. When people come to see King David with a problem, he says, tell me why you're here. He said, well, I got a problem. I was going to see the king. He said, well, tell me all about it. And so they open up and they talk to Absalom. He says, let me help you with this problem. And so he does that for four years. And Absalom begins to win over the hearts of the people of Israel. And it says in Scripture, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee and none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave here immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. So David, once again, he abandons his throne, and once again, he's a fugitive on the run. And he has to leave the city, and all of his followers, the people who are faithful to him, they go with him, his army and all of the people who remain faithful to David, and they leave. But this time, he's not 22 years old as he was earlier in this series, but now he's 61 years old. And this was not David's dream. This was not what was supposed to happen. This is what he never expected. And this is where David's life intersects with yours and mine. Because we can relate to our dreams not coming true. We're heartbroken. Sometimes we're disappointed. We may be angry and frustrated with God. Maybe we're looking for someone to blame. Maybe we're blaming God. After all, God could keep this from happening, right? And oftentimes, all we do is make things worse because we're so angry and hurt and frustrated with God and disappointed that we don't know what to do with ourselves. But David learned not to take matters into his own hands. You see, when he was a young man, when he was 22, when he fled and he took off because King Saul was trying to kill him so he couldn't stay in the country, of all the places for him to go, he's already killed Goliath. Where does he go? He goes to his enemies, the Philistines. He said, listen, I'd like to fight with you now. And they looked at him and they shook their head. They said, there's no way that's going to happen. In fact, you're carrying Goliath's sword with you. We remember when you killed Goliath. He says, well, and he doesn't know what to do. He panics. And so then he starts acting like he's gone crazy. He's mad. And so the king says, get him out of here. I got enough crazy people to deal with. I don't need him around here anymore. So all of David's supporters, they flee with David. But this time, he doesn't take matters into his own hands. 
When he was a teenager, what did he say? This battle is the Lord's. And he trusts God to take care of the giant, just like God protected him from a lion and a bear when he was watching the sheep. But at 22, he's afraid. And he forgets the lesson that he showed everybody else when he killed Goliath when he was a teenager. But now he's older, and now he's learned, hey, it's not about me. It's whatever God wants. That's what I want. And then it says, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. So David isn't even sure where he's going at this point, but he turns to the high priest Zadok, and he says, Zadok was there, and he says, and all the Levites were there with him. And David sees that they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, let's talk about the Ark of the Covenant of God. You see, it would be later on when Solomon becomes the king after David, he would build the temple. But God said, you've had too much uh, battle and, and fighting and too much death and blood during your kingship, so you're not going to build the temple. You can get it ready, but Solomon will build it. So before they had the temple, the presence of God was literally to them in the Ark of the Covenant. And they would take it with them wherever they went. And so the people following David walk out of the city, watching him, and they say, number one, we're going to follow David because he's God's man. He's the king. God put him in that position. He's the one we're going to be faithful to. And number two, just in case we've got the Ark of the Covenant with us, that means we've got God with us, so we'll be fine, right? But here's what happens. When David finds out what's going on, then this is what he says. Then the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of the Covenant back to the city. And you can hear everybody who can hear him say that start to mourn at that point. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Don't you think we need God with us? Why are you doing that? And now the people around David are panicking because they, they follow David, but they don't have the presence of God. But I want you to listen to his explanation for this. He says, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. What's he saying? Not my will, but your will, God. Because even though I'm flawed and even though I've failed and even though I've made mistakes and even though I've sinned, I know who the real God is. I know who the true king is, and I'm going to trust him. And even though I've lost my world, I haven't lost my confidence in God. So he chose not to abandon God when it appeared that God was going to abandon him. God put me in this place, and he will choose where and when and how I get out of this. He leaves the city, and he leaves the ark. Absalom comes in, he takes over the city, but it's a hollow victory because he comes in, and even though he has the capital, he doesn't have the king. And David and his entourage end up in a city called Mahanim, Mahanim. And there they realize that Absalom is coming after them. So David divides up his army into three different groups. And he says, now when you catch up with Absalom, he tells the army, 
Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of his commanders. Now the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And that's important because it's not that you've got so many people to fight that you really need. Masses of people won't help you because you're going to be fighting in a forest. So if you're in a forest, you need experience, you need organization, and you need communication. And that's what David's army has. It goes on, it says, There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. And the battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men than by the sword. In other words, more people died in the forest than they did in open battle. And eventually Absalom is caught, and instead of bringing him back to King David, Joab butchers him in front of the army. And once Absalom is killed, the army immediately puts down their weapons and they just go back home. And David mourns Absalom, his son. In fact, he mourns him so greatly that the people that fight for him, his army, they're afraid to celebrate too much because it's so intense the way he's mourning. And nine years later, now he has returned to Jerusalem. He's been restored as the king, but nine years later, David dies at the age of 70. And he's never, ever the same. And I think it speaks to the authenticity of the Bible that they tell us the truth about David. The Bible doesn't try to hide David's faults and failures and flaws. And David, through all of that, no matter what he lost, good or bad, up or down, he kept his confidence in God. He learned from his mistakes. And there's a simple takeaway for this, and it's this. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayer or happily ever after endings. It's not about our dreams coming true or even our prayers coming true because God's presence and his activity in our lives is what we need. And so here's what David would say to us today if he could come and talk to us. He would say, if you think you are forsaken, you are mistaken. Because God hadn't given up on you. And even when things were up and down and back and forth, I didn't know there were highs and lows. But one thing I knew, I could depend on my God. And the circumstances and the broken hearts and the anger about our own dreams not coming true, we can join David in this extraordinary statement that he makes as he's leaving the city. He says, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. What's he saying? Not my will, but your will be done. And I'll trust you. I may lose my world, but I'll keep my confidence in God. When I was in high school, I played football. Our team, I've told you, we went 10-0. and 0. We won all the regular season games. Our coach told us we were going to do that. We were just dumb enough to believe him. We won all those games, and then we went over to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we played Baylor in the playoffs, and it was like playing the University of Alabama when you're in high school. 
They had three first-string teams, and they killed us. We held them to halftime, and they killed us. And we walked off the field with our heads held proud because we did the best we could. They went on that year and won the state championship. They were 13 and no. I wish we could have played those other two teams they beat. We, we might have been able to beat them, too, and then lose to Baylor. That wouldn't have been too bad. But, you know, my dream was, hey, I want to go to college, and I want to play college football. But right after my football season, my junior year in high school, I rededicated my life to Christ. And then I spent, started spending all my time with my Christian friends, and many of them were going off to college. They were older than me. And I just lived to go to Bible study. Every Tuesday, I'd drive 45 minutes to, down to the college just to be with them. And, you know, God gave me a new dream. And I just got involved with it, and I didn't even play football my senior year. I was the president of the youth group and very involved in that. And then, I, I, 21 years old, I answered the call to the ministry. God said, you had one dream, but I'm going to give you another. And then later on, Laura and I got married. We were married for 12 years, and she's a school teacher. I'm a preacher. We work with other kids, other people's kids all the time. We want to have children. We start trying to have kids. Nothing happened. We went to specialists. They said, well, you can have kids, but nothing happened. We're married 12 years, and so we go to an adoption agency in Pensacola, and we sign up with them. We say, now, Lord, this is the agency, and we're going to put all our eggs in this basket, and we're going to trust you and your timing, and when it's time... You just send us the children you want us to have. And we adopted two kids. You know what we discovered? When you special order, when you custom order, you get what you want. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so we got two daughters, and God gave us a new dream. And now we've got a granddaughter. Have I mentioned her to you before? <laughs> and she, they're coming in next weekend. All of them are coming down to spend the weekend with us on Memorial Day weekend. We've ordered more grandchildren, but everything in Amazon's backed up, and it hadn't come in yet. So we're hoping that'll turn around, and we'll get to let you know about it. But, you know, God gave us a new dream. And then I was a Methodist preacher for over 40 years. I mean, I was in youth group, and, and they came to us, and they said, we're going to take you all to Florida to church camp. And I said, where'd I sign? And I got on the bus, and they lied to us. They took us to Baldwin County, Alabama. And we went to Perdido Bay, and we went to Camp Glory. And there, many of us, you know, went into the ministry. We, we uh, got saved. We made commitments. And five guys from my home church went into the ministry. And then he picked us up and brought us down here to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, the Alabama-West Florida Conference. And they called us the McMinnville Mafia. They said we were taking over the Gulf Coast down here. We weren't that smart. We didn't know we needed to come down here, but God did. But then, you know, the Methodist church started changing. And I just got to the point where I didn't feel like I could be a Methodist anymore. And we prayed about it, and we talked about it, and the bishop came, and he met with us, and he spoke to the whole district, and we hosted the meeting. And he told them about all the things going on in the Methodist church, and our people listened to him. And they came to me, and they said, why are we still doing this? Why don't we get out? And we went into a two-and-a-half-year negotiation process. And I was a Methodist until I wasn't. And the bishop said to me, I can't defend the Methodist church. That's pretty strong, isn't it? And so he, I did everything he asked me to do for two-and-a-half years. And then he said, it's okay. You go ahead. And we said, how much? And they told us, and we paid them, and we got out. 
And my friends thought I was a maverick. What has gone wrong with Joe? He's gone off the deep end. I don't know. And now they're, now they're all getting out. I mean, they've just voted a bunch of them, hundreds of them, and they're all getting out, and, and they call me on the phone, and they say, you're a lot smarter than we thought you were. Some of them say, we should have listened to you back in the day when you got out. Well, I wish we'd gotten out then. And, you know, God gave us a new drink, and we went from Woodlawn UMC to Woodlawn PCB. So what do you do when your dreams don't come true? You just ask God, give me a new dream. Then you celebrate it. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the way that you've shown us the life of David. We thank you for what we learned from him. We thank you for what we learned from experiences with you. We pray, Lord, that we will be faithful and obedient and do whatever it is you call us to do. And even when we fail and even when we're flawed and even when we make mistakes, Lord, that we'll just keep our confidence in you and we'll keep trusting you and we'll keep moving forward with you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said,